I'm reading from the book of to the Colossians. I read from the closing remarks, the last chapter. It's the closing remarks of the Apostle Paul. He writes the book. He writes it to the church of Colossia. He writes to combat several errors that were occurring among the congregation there. Essentially, Paul will tell them that all they ever need is the Lord. Everything that they need is found in Christ Jesus. And then from our understanding, even in the word, the founder of the church in the city of Colossia was Epaphras. Of course, his name is lost in the annals of biblical history. It's a difficult name to pronounce and doesn't hold much appeal. But Paul is writing from a prison cell in Rome. And in prison, Paul is giving instruction and direction to the people in a city that some say he never visited. Now before I read, just notice the company that Paul kept Is everybody with me now? The company that Paul kept in this moment in a Roman prison cell, they are made known at the end of this letter. They are men of great importance. And we read from the word Colossians chapter 4 and just a handful of verses. Here's verse 12. Epiphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Verse 13, for I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you. He has a heart for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus, the church which is in his house. And at the, Paul, at the end, Paul will put down his pen and parchment and will include the names of these men in the book we call the Bible. Luke the beloved physician and Demas greet you. I preach tonight in hopes of a church disposition. With a great burden that we would have a particular disposition. I've waited for many months to get to this night tonight. And a particular door opened for me to present this word to all of you faithful, wonderful folks, people of God. So I pray, Father, 
Let the word be sown in the hearts of the people who hear it. Let all the hearers hear. I pray, Lord, that your word would fall on receptive ears, spirits that embrace it. I pray for the church, this family, this particular family, on the corner of Chamberlain and Wabash, that this particular fellowship would have a disposition. Let it be of you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be in this house resonant. Envelop us, Lord, with your presence right now in this house. Clear our minds of all the clutter and thoughts that confuse us, the cacophony of voices that echo in our hearts and our minds and our ears that are against your word. I pray in Jesus' name and with your whole heart and your hands lifted and your mouths open to God. Come on, invite him right now. Father, we need you here. Yes, yes, yes. We need you in this place. Uh, oh. Oh. And I thank you. Why don't we just why don't we just praise him for a moment before we're seated? Just speak out praises to God. Uh, before you're seated. A young man received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. His name was Sean. It was in the North Campus. Where's my youth pastor? His name was Sean. Help me, Brother Chris. Okay, received the Holy Ghost this morning in, in our youth service. And also, Shane Waller is here and spoke in tongues for the first time. We're so excited about what happened to you, Brother Shane. Praise God. Two people. Amen. Amen. God bless you, and you may be seated. Thank you for standing. In the early days, not so early, but in our early days, from time to time, Tammy and I would, would have a, the privilege of going to a service that I was not preaching. She enjoyed those services. We traveled for five years, and unlike many evangelists at those times, we lived out of a Nissan Altima with a clothing bar in the back seat and her ab roller in the trunk. One year, Pastor Stark in Columbus, Ohio, invited Billy Cole to come and teach. And so, on a cold winter's night, a handful of people 
joined in that big sanctuary in 38 Greenwood and listened to Billy Cole teach. He taught profound lessons. And in fact, one of them was just a training session. He, he was one of the most interesting men I had ever met. He's passed away now. In the United States, he would have been considered a pastor at his local church. But in the East, in the Far East, he was known as a prophet. And in Africa, he was known as an apostle. We probably didn't recognize him for who he really uh, was. Like most people, we have a problem recognizing the true office of the people we hear. Of the many things that Tammy and I learned from him was the attitude of the altar worker. What our disposition should be as an altar worker. He once taught the differences in prayers for those who need a healing for their body and those who are seeking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That there's a difference. In fact, the person praying for them often comes with a different disposition. Brother Cole said, when we pray for the sick and they're not healed, most often we leave feeling disappointed because we yearn for them to be healed. He said, however, when, when we pray for those seeking for the Holy Ghost and they don't receive it, he said, many people walk away appeased and feeling fine. And they're not really disappointed. He taught us about the response that we ought to have, the response of those who pray for the sick and those who pray for the infilling of the Spirit as it happened in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. When we leave without a second thought or we are undisturbed at the result, it shows that we have no vested interest in the person we're praying for. The feeling, the emotion, the joy or disappointment is the sign of our interest in them. The same is true when someone we love repents, turns from a lifestyle. We feel joy and happiness. Not only should there be joy and rejoicing in heaven that the angels rejoice, but in the church when someone repents, everyone ought to rejoice. They turned around. One of our problems is that we don't rejoice at repentance because we like to see other things. I just want to pause and tell everybody, we're going to rejoice at anyone who makes one step towards the cross. In fact, if you are here tonight, I'm rejoicing because you got here tonight. Here's the reason. It's very simple. We're connected. When you rejoice and you're happy, you're attached. There's this intangible vein that joins us together. It's deeper than a surface smile. It's more pure than the driven snow. Like a father to a son watching from the stands, the son succeeds and the father responds as if he is the one on the field. His heart's beating out a rhythm. He cannot separate himself from his son because he is vested, vested. 
all the years of pitch and catch. Or maybe another son, maybe another scenario made of study and some science or mathematics of teaching, talking, culminating in the moment of delivery, a graduation, a recognition of achievement, of achievement. The reason why we swell up with pride is because we're vested. Gives rise to peak emotions and speaks of personal sacrifices, even forfeiture vested. Because when you're vested, you have to have a stake in the game. You're giving up something for the sake of someone else. And it's, it's an attachment that words cannot fully explain or describe. But it also can drive you into the darkest of places. It's what drove the prophet Samuel to the lowest of lows as he heard the forlorn desire of the people of Israel. He had led them so proficiently, Samuel had, with passion and devotion. But at the end, they said to Samuel, give us a king. Here's the word. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people. And all they say unto thee, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God said it was against him, but Samuel was still hurt. Samuel didn't leave unscathed. He was wounded at the request of the people. Regardless of God's consoling words about rejection and the ownership of such, Samuel himself felt rejected and nothing would change that fact. The reason was simple. Samuel was vested. He had led them out of darkness. He was there with them as they marched against their enemies. He was not only their minister, but he was one of them. He served them. For the duration of his life, he gave up his family also. His mother gave him away for the cause and he executed his position better and more fervently than anyone before him or after. He offered sacrifices. He gave them direction. He spoke words of wisdom to the people. He prophesied them into prosperity. He preached. He taught. He judged them fairly. Samuel's entire life revolved around the temple and the statutes of the Lord. But they let the median sun fall dark on their spiritual view and it ushered in faltering kings for hundreds of years to come. All of his warnings fell on deaf ears. All of his predictions could not persuade them to change their minds and he hung his head and walked away. He gave them reasons, all of which were known and foreseeable. They were logical reasons why they should not want a king. He spoke of all the damage present as well as their diminished future. But alas, the word, they refused to listen to Samuel. They said, no, we want a king over us. Had Samuel been cold and indifferent, he would have simply walked away from them, shrugging it off. It wouldn't have mattered to him. He would have offered no such rebuttal, but he loved them. And he'd already spent a lifetime looking out for them. He was vested. He gave up his singular spiritual leadership for a secular kingdom. And it wounded him to the core. The Bible tells us that he was not the only one. But if you read through it, you'll find a litany of leaders that love the people. Moses was one of them. The Bible tells us that Moses actually stood in the way of God's wrath. After all the Lord had done for the people of Israel, they rejected the law of God and His holiness. They followed the path of their immoral nature and did unspeakable sins before God. Mercy hung on the brink of judgment. They would have been wiped out had it not been for the bodily interference and intercession of Moses, their leader. The psalmist put it this way, and I read, They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. 
miracles in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Moses recalled the moment in his own writing. God said to Moses, and Moses is recalling this. God said, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. I'll make you a great nation, mightier and better than they, greater than they are. Moses stood in the gap, lest they be destroyed. So the Lord, the Bible says, changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to the people. Why? Because Moses was vested. Moses could have walked away. They complained about him enough. It's a wonder why he did not. They talked about his leadership. At one point they said that he acted like he was the only spiritual one among them. And they wanted to spread out the authority. Some of them took up stones time and again to kill him. About 250 of them decided that he should be removed completely. Of course the Lord burned them up and the earth swallowed them up. Moses had more trouble from within than he ever had from without. Constantly criticized. The complaint department was overrun. We don't have any food. We're tired of the same food. Manna is boring. We want meat. Meat. Give us meat. Give us meat. They gave him meat. The meat made him sick. Now we're dying from the meat. You gave us bad meat. We're thirsty. We're going to die of thirst. Then comes the rock. Speaking to the rock, striking the rock. The promised land looks nice, but they're giants. We can't take it. The only thing that kept Moses together was the fact that he was vested in the people. He was vested. They were his brothers. They were his family. He loved them. He led them when they did not want to be led. He cared for them when they took from him his life's blood. Jethro, his father-in-law, saw it in real time. They're going to kill you this way. And when God wanted to include more leaders... Not everyone was happy about it. God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give your spirit to 70 other men. But Moses, he had to rebut some of them that withstood him. And Moses said, would God that all of his people were prophets. Moses wasn't jealous. He wasn't a narcissistic leader. He didn't think it was all about him. He wanted the best for the people. He wanted them to be prophets themselves. He wanted them to live in the land that flowed with milk and honey. He even laid his hands on Joshua when he knew he wasn't going to lead them there. And he anointed Joshua and told all the people, this is your leader. No hint of bitterness or anger or regret because Moses was a vested leader. It was personal and it showed. That's what happens when you meet a real shepherd. Real shepherds think about the people. They think about getting them where God wants them to be. It's not a job with a punch card. Never clock out. It's day and night, night and day. It's in the afternoon. It's on a plane. It's walking through a shopping center. It's at an amusement park. It's at a dinner. It's at coffee. It's vested. It never, ever, 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 ever goes away. It's on the mind day and night like an imprint, a tattoo on the brain, the people. It's a conflicting in the restraint of the heart. It's vested. What I do is not a cold transaction. What we're doing in here is not a cold and indifferent transaction. And anyone who says that the shepherd should just let things roll off his back is oblivious to the intangible vein of connection. There is no joy ever in the backslider. 
There is no reprieve even from those who cause trouble. It's always painful. And there's no joy greater than seeing faithful people enter the house of God to serve young people becoming pillars in the church. There's no greater joy than that. The growth of the individual is the prize, not the number in the congregation. The depth of spirituality is the reward, not the height of material success. Cars and clothes and houses and land and money make no difference. Especially if the people are immoral. Buildings don't qualify a man. Property doesn't make someone anointed. It's the investment in the Spirit of God where people's lives are changed and the Holy Ghost can have His free reign. And I'm just one of thousands who know it. Samuel knew it and Moses lived it. Jesus cried over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her brew, but you wouldn't let me. And Paul who at the moment of his imprisonment writes about the knowledge of the coming days. He's sitting with two of his most trusted men, Luke and Demas. They are men of high honor and anointing. They suffer with him. They work with him. They labor with him. They are men of prayer. They are men of sacrifice. They see the cost of the gospel and all that it entails, how the Pharisees seek to do them harm on one hand and while the Roman Empire measures out their lives in minutes. And I wish I could even, I wish I could describe them in full, but there's so much work they have to do. Luke was there with Jesus, but Paul had to hear the stories and Demas was one with them. I wish I could just leave those two men in their place. I wish that was it. I wish that Epiphras was the only glaring name leaping from the verses of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. But there is another name that cuts to the heart. And it's not Luke and it's not Epiphras. It's Demas. Demas won't stay in the room with Paul. I don't know why, but he's not going to say something that's happening to Demas. Something that's happened has conflicted him of the which is kept from us. It's like a death. Paul will look into the abyss of lost disciples that once labored with him, that sacrificed with him, that prayed those late night prayers, that went through the streets, that sat in the prison cells with him, for the day will come when Paul will give a report, a sad report, to his beloved apprentice Timothy, and he'll write of his beloved friend Demas. He's telling Timothy about it when he writes, and I quote from 2 Timothy, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and he went to Thessalonica. You ought to notice the words. Even after every translation is given, every iteration and meaning, they remain true to form. Demas hath forsaken me. Not God. Not the church. Not his family or the truth or the doctrines of old. Paul took the loss of Demas personally. It was a personal loss. So anybody... Who shrugs it off before you toss out some minimal condolence of the backslider who loved this present world. And we should just let it be. Just know that when you're vested, it's a cut to the heart and a death. That's right. I know they left God. I know that people sometimes love the truth and backslide and get lost in the world. I know that happens. I know that people give their heart to God and then suddenly they're into secularism. 
relativism takes over and then some some of them become atheists and turn their back and just wonder if there is a God. People who were once sitting on pews become agnostic and say that he's unknowable. Some of them even turn to other dark religions and pantheisms. Can you imagine? Pentecostals becoming Catholics. It's just bizarre. But these things happen all the time. I know that. I'm not writing that off and just say, well, they, they, they're lost to that. You know, you just got to put in God's hands. They are in God's hands. But demons have forsaken me. You see, vested changes the way you think about the ploys of the enemy. I know the other God. I know the people who lead the truth left the Lord. But without the vested, there's no intercession. Nobody is an intercessor until you're vested. You don't even know how to pray intercessory prayer until you become vested and you got a connection with somebody who's having trouble. Vested changes the way you think about all the plots of the enemy. Vested makes you think differently about care and concern and passion and time. When our cars get dirty and they need to be clean, which is often... I take taking a brother Ed Wells, and he does his thing. He'll wash them. He'll wax it. He'll shampoo the carpets. He'll get all the road tar off the side panels. I give him the cars because they belong to me. But when we rented a large SUV and we brought it back, we just picked up the paper that was on the floor. No one ever washes and waxes a rental car. If you do, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you why. You wash and you wax your own car. And you clean your car. I feel like I'm preaching about something that needs to stay on here. You ought to go clean your car, okay. You're envisioning the smashed gummy bears and McDonald's french fries in the back seat. Go clean that up. <laughs> There's a reason why people don't do all that to something they don't own. Because they're not vested. They have not paid anything into it. They haven't bought it. They don't care about it. Hear me. The church survives because someone is interceding for the church. The body lives because intercession is made for the body. The body doesn't live if there are no prayers for the body from the body. The building is maintained because someone cares about the building. The facilities are clean and they're cared for because someone has a vested interest in it. Lives are bettered. Worship is exampled. Prayer is made because people have a vested interest in prayer. Vested means to love without expectation of return. Vested means that there are not places, there are no places out of reach. It's love with inclusion and a soft answer. It's mercy beyond mercy beyond mercy beyond. It's exampleship for the sake of the seeker it's not just worshiping because you feel like it it's because you know somebody is watching you and you've got to set the bar you got to show somebody how to clap and praise and go through hard times and cry and mourn but still get up and get back to the house of god because you're vested you're vested in something that's greater than you you're vested in people that are around you it's rejoicing at the revelations found by others even though you already found them long time ago. Vested is patience and forbearance. It means serving anywhere, everywhere, without limitations. Vested means that you think about the church family 
It means that you believe there's a heaven and a hell and you're seeking for lost souls because you know there is an eternity waiting for them. It's weeping over people. It's weeping over those that are lost that never found the Lord. It's weeping over people who have forsaken the Lord. It's being angry at the lies of the devil and guiding someone away from temptation that would destroy their walk with God. It takes time. Vested takes time. And not just a little time. It takes an entire lifetime. And I hold in my hand a framed page of lyrics. It was the favorite song of one of our new converts a few years ago. He didn't leave me the way he found me. He didn't leave me to die in my sin. But he filled me with his Holy Spirit. And now I'm a brand new man. Her name is at the bottom, and there's a particular date. Tammy had it made for her because she said to Tammy, she said, I received a baptismal certificate when I was baptized in the water, but when I received the Holy Ghost, I didn't get a certificate. Tammy said, I'm going to make you one. So Tammy made it. At the bottom here is her name. It's the date when she received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But our young covered had a lot of trouble in her life. She was abused and she abused. She was in and out of jail a lot. Sometimes she was addicted and sometimes she was sober. I could never tell. Some of you knew I couldn't tell. Sometimes she cried for God, and sometimes she just cried because her life was miserable. She came to church, and she came to the altar. She finally found a shawl and put it over her sleeveless dress because she said to me, Pastor, I don't want to bother people. I've got so many tattoos. I said, it's okay. Sometimes she didn't do right. Most of the time she didn't do right. But when she prayed, she spoke in tongues. She prayed to God. We counseled her a couple of times. I couldn't hardly make sense of everything that she said. Half the time I think she might have lied to me. Told me things that weren't true. And then when she started to confess things that were true, I had to cover my ears. (laughs) then she had more trouble and probably shouldn't even be around a lot of people but she called me and said can I come back to church I said of course we worked it out we worked out a plan but despite her best efforts we lost sight of her again and at last she finally had an overdose and she passed away recently that was our new convert We never had a chance to give her her frame song with a date when she received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And I'm broken because of it. It haunts my thinking. It messes with me. When I hear of trivial things of the saints and people who complain about nothing, I think about our new convert who struggled through life, who was severely abused. In every way possible when she was young. And that's how she treated every relationship in her life. 
And her only hope was New Life Fellowship. And her only place of comfort was the altar. And she said, he wouldn't leave me the way he found me. I just want to remember when I got the Holy Ghost. Listen, if you're cold, you get up and walk out of here when I'm done. It won't make any difference to you. But if you're vested, it matters when people come and how they leave. If you're not vested, you won't have a burden. You won't have remorse. And when they're not healed, you just walk away and say, well, I guess they didn't have the faith. But when they're not healed, you ought to hang your head like Brother Cole said. And, and you ought to say to yourself, I just got to pray. I got to seek God. I'm not taking comfort in a prayer that's unanswered. And I can't put the blame on somebody else. I take responsibility for every person who's heard the word of God. But somehow I fell short. Something about me caused them to lose faith and it grinds me day and night. I don't want to end up at a pulpit here. I'm not a pulpit here. I don't want to get paid for what I'm doing. I don't want to come up and put on a show. I don't want to sing songs to lyrics and clap my hands and smile and act like everything's okay. Not when my heart is breaking inside and I look around and I see people that are missing from the church tonight and I wonder, where are they? What's going on in their life? What did we do wrong? I don't want you to absolve me from anything because I'm taking responsibility for my city and for the word of God that he put inside of me. Yeah. And I pray, God, give our church a disposition. We are vested in this thing. This is our life where everything we do is revolving around our walk with Jesus Christ. Every day we get up, we're thinking about the Lord. Every day we go to work, we're thinking about our witness. Every day we get with our families, we're going to talk something good about Jesus. Every day we get with our negative friends and our negative family, we're going to insert something about the goodness of the Lord. Every day we make a decision, buy anything, we're thinking how is it going to impact the kingdom? Some kids lived in some apartments back here behind the church, on the other side, rather, over there. I didn't really know all their names until one day. Bill and Angie was giving out some food and they had boxes of cereal. And the two younger ones wanted to get some boxes of cereal. And the older sister, the oldest sister, Sassy, she said to the younger one, she said, oh no, we can't have all of that. You leave it for someone else. They were so hungry. When the, Folks said, no, you take the cereal. They were so happy to have the cereal. Their mama was strung out in drugs and their dad was struggling to raise them. They would walk over to church. Kenny got a little older and he got street smart, had a bicycle. He figured it out. If he rode his bicycle down to Long John Silver at night and helped them sweep right before they closed, take out the trash for him, they'd give him all the remaining food. 
that was in the warmers that people didn't buy. And he'd smile every time he came back, riding his bicycle with bags of food. And they'd all sit down, the three of them, and they'd eat all the food. And when their father could no longer raise them the way he wanted to, and he needed so much help, he moved them south to where his sister lived. And she said, I'll help raise them. And that last night before he left, before Kenny left, we had him in our home, and we all took pictures, and all the pictures were all crying. And I said, Tammy, can we just, can we keep them with us? She said, they, their daddy loves them and their aunt, they got to go. And I think about them and I wonder if we did enough, did we imprint on them deep enough so they wouldn't forget about Jesus? Was there enough love in the church? What could we have done as a body or what could I have done personally to keep them or even make them remember that the Pentecostals are not just a bunch of people who talk in tongues, shout and clap, but they are people of love. Because I'm concerned from early on that we've hung our hat on the gifts, but we forgot about love. And we take more value in prophesying than we do about embracing people and just loving them. And when we lose them, does anybody remember where they sat? And I say, there's a disposition I'm praying that it would overtake our church. Let it be the disposition. I'm vested. I'm vested in you. I bleed for you. I pray for you. My treasures aren't in, in this earth they're not for myself, but they're in the people. I don't know how many sad verses are in the Bible. I found one sad one. <clears throat> this has got to be one of the most heartbreaking verses in all the scripture. God speaks to the prophet. These are the words of the Lord. I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, somebody who would stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I, I didn't find anyone. I preach tonight for all the people that can hear it. Don't ever think you can cruise in and out of this place without inflicting a burden on my heart and mind. I'm going to carry it tomorrow. You're not unnoticed. I preach tonight for a disposition, and if so be, a disposition change for all the church. If one person has left this house and you know they're struggling in their life, you take on their name and you pray that God would save them. And if one person 
in this place is seeking for the Holy Spirit. You pray like there is nothing else in this life that ever matters. And if one person who is struggling with sickness or disease, and you go up to them and you pray for them, you don't pray some patty cake prayer, some little recital. You get a hold of God, the throne of grace. You plead the blood of Jesus like it is your best friend, your loved one, your wife, and your son, your daughter. You speak against every dominion and every power that's facing their lives, and you rebuke the hand of the enemy out of them. You pray the stripes of Jesus Christ that he put on his back would be applied to their life right now. When you lay hands on somebody, you don't play freeze tag. You put your hand on them and you pray in the name of Jesus because you are vested in them. And when you think about young people and young married people and people that are new in the church, you don't think about yourself. You think about the impact that you're making on their lives. I'm talking about a disposition change. And if we ever got a disposition change and got vested in one another, no telling what could happen. We've got to have love and inclusion. It takes time. And I'm already failing. I've already failed. I've already failed. Because the best I can do is pray for a few. The best I can do is have a few conversations every day. That's the best I can do. But I wonder what would happen if the whole church had those conversations. We all prayed the prayer of faith. We all, we all said, you're going to make it. You're not going to quit. You're not, you're, not, you're not going down. Come on, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to bring you back in. What you don't know is that every time we're helping people that need a little help, every Sunday morning when the bus door is open and whoever's in the kitchen is making egg burritos, thank God, and a little bowl of cereal, what you don't know, that's a vested ministry. You're putting something in their belly. I hope it puts something in their mind. I don't know where they're going to end up in life. I hope they end up with the Lord. But I will tell you, they should never lose the image. Uh, they should say I remember that church that church fed me when I was hungry they loved me and Jesus said it this when I was sick when I was hungry when I was naked when I was cold you never did it to me and they said well Lord when were you when were you when, when were you? and he said when you've done it to the least of these you want to serve God You find one of the 170 children that grace this tabernacle every weekend and you love on them. That is a soul. Believe it or not, that eight-year-old is going to grow up and they're probably going to get married and have children. Wouldn't it be great if every one of them found their way into an altar and a walk with Jesus Christ for the rest of their life. I'll tell you how it happens. You are vested in their lives and you imprint on their spirits. And we can't save all of them. But we're going to do our best to save them because there's a tug of war for their life.